0: One of my favorite parts of going to the Blank Park Zoo in Des Moines is Deuce, the lion, the male African lion that they have in the, the big cat exhibit there. Uh, and one of the things that I like about the zoo here is I've been to other zoos before where you can see the animals far off in the distance. Uh, you're not very close to them, but at the Blank Park Zoo, there's a, a, a glass window that's right there, and kids, some of you guys have been to the zoo before, but if you can think of it, you go to the zoo, and sometimes there's a rock right there in front of that glass window, and Deuce, that lion, is just laying right there, right in front of you. You can almost reach out, feel like you could reach out and touch him. And kids, have you seen him? You know what I'm talking about? That lion. I love the lions and the big cats. Well, I remember about a year or so ago, we were at the zoo, and we were on the other side of the zoo, and Deuce, the lion started to roar. We weren't anywhere close to the cat exhibit, but, and the only place that I've heard a roar of a lion before was on TV. But that in no way encapsulates the, the power and the might of the roar of a lion. It almost even, you could feel it shaking almost Your bone. I mean, it was really loud, it was deep, and and it almost felt as if the, the ground shook as this beast, this king of the beasts, roared. You can almost see why, and you can feel and hear why often lions are called the king of the beasts. Well, you know, we weren't anywhere close to it, but we could feel it, we could hear it. Well, that's in many ways what we're considering this morning, the roaring cry of a king. And the roaring of a, of a king's enemies, and then the roaring of the expansion of the rule of God through his king, the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Listen to Psalm chapter 22 as I read. Psalm chapter 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? The words of my groaning, from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Ashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a posture, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Word Without error, spot, or stain. We pray that God would write its eternal truth upon each of our hearts. We see that Jesus taught his disciples that everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In John chapter 5, Jesus said that the scriptures bear witness about him, about Jesus... The Apostle Peter said that David was a prophet, knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that God would set one of his descendants on the throne, on the throne of David. And the Apostle Paul wrote that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. The clear teaching of the Bible is this, that Jesus is the point, The Bible is always pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to Jesus Christ in many ways, in covenant promises that God has made to his people. It points to Jesus Christ via analogy or allusion. It points to Jesus Christ via types and shadows, foreshadowing the coming of Jesus Christ in many ways. And as we read through the Old Testament, we should be looking for how that text is relating to or pointing to Jesus Christ. But we also have to recognize that not every single text in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ in the exact same way. That said, though, one of the clearest ways that we can know as we're reading through our Bibles that a text in the Bible is pointing at the Lord Jesus Christ is by observing what Jesus taught about a particular text or what the apostles taught about a particular text. So what Old Testament passages did the very men that Jesus taught during his earthly ministry, the passages of Scripture that men that Jesus taught for the 40 days after Jesus was raised again from the dead before he would be ascended to the right hand of God, what passages did these men, the, the apostles, teach that so clearly from the Old Testament pointed at the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, there's many texts in the Old Testament that do this. But one of those texts is this, right here this morning, Psalm 22. One commentator writes that Psalm 22 is quoted more frequently in the New Testament than any other psalm. But how? How is Psalm 22 pointing at Christ? It doesn't do it in such a way that it denies that David, what he meant by this text as he wrote it, as he was carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit... So as we consider Psalm 22, consider both David, but also consider Jesus Christ. And this is the big idea of the text. God's king faced abandonment in order to save the world. God's king faced abandonment in order to save the world. And here's three points from the text we'll be considering this morning. First, the roaring lament of a suffering king. The roaring lament of a suffering king. The, number two, the roaring threat of the king's enemies. The roaring threat of the king's enemies. And then number three, the roaring expansion of the king's rule. The roaring expansion of the king's rule. And as we consider this text, ask God to open your eyes, and my eyes as well, to the reality that King Jesus was forsaken by God for his people, so that if we would turn from our sin and trust in Jesus as the king and treasure of our lives that we would never be forsaken by God that he Christ Jesus Christ was forsaken so that his people would never be abandoned we well, consider the first point from verses 1 through 11 the roaring lament of a suffering king in verses 1 through 11 there's two laments, you know, two, two expressions of sorrow. Uh, first, in verses 1 through 2, and then second, in verses 6 through 8. And in, in, in this, we see David fighting his despair with the truth that, uh, of a God who has done great things. Of a, of a holy and just and righteous God. Look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we see this lament, is deep in it. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And that word groaning there, that's the same word that's translated as roaring, like the lions over in verse 13. So that's where that roaring comes from, that thinking of that roaring. So David's lament of his crying out, that's a a roaring. And David feels that God is far from saving him. And and the, the, the groaning that he lets out, that he is crying out to God. Think of the bellowing of the lion again, as if the ground is shaking as he cries out to God. And David knows that unless God hears and acts, that there is no hope for him in the midst of what he faces. He doesn't try to conjure up self-esteem. He doesn't try to look within himself to somehow find the power to move through his sorrows. No, he laments to God based upon God's Promises based upon the very character of who God is. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? Why don't you answer me? Why can't I find rest? Friends, this is God's king. God has promised David that his throne would endure forever. And when David lifts up his eyes, he doesn't see that. He only sees trouble. He only sees being encompassed and surrounded by enemies. There's an intensity to David's suffering here that none of us can know. This must have been a time in David's life when God's promise of making his house sure, his lineage and the throne of David sure had not yet totally happened. The promise of God hangs in the balance in what would happen with God's king, his anointed king, King David. This This doesn't mean that God's people don't face sorrow and that at times feel as if they are abandoned by God in this life, there are times when it does feel like God is far off and distant. But that feeling that you or I may have is only a, a glimmer of the abandonment that David felt. And Jesus taught us that we will face many sorrows in this life, but that he will never leave us or forsake us. Even in that psalm that we read, that, the the call to worship for this service this morning we see in the Old Testament God will not abandon his people so even though if you're trusting in Christ you feel as if God has abandoned you friend speak truth into your circumstances but God's promise of bringing a Messiah to save a people from their sin that doesn't hang in the balance on my life God hasn't made a promise that a king would come from my lineage through whom he would save a people for himself. God's covenant of redemption and this covenant of grace by faith alone in Christ alone the, the Messiah Christ it will not be established if David's family line is not established. So he's despairing at the threat of his life because the throne has not been established yet. And David lived with the knowledge that unless God establishes his throne through his family that God's promise would be seen as empty and that there would be no hope of salvation for anyone in the face of the just wrath of God that is coming for sinners, of which we are all. If God abandoned David, then surely God has abandoned his promise to his people. This aggravates David's real sense of abandonment and feelings of despair. But God has driven his promise deep within David's heart to the point that despair does not overtake him. So you see a few times that he's lamenting, pretty deep laments here, but here we see that David is fighting that lament. He is fighting that despair by reminding himself about who God is. Look at verses 3 through 5. Yet, these conjunctions are powerful conjunctions here. Yet, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. Oh, friends, God is holy. He's not like us. He's not like me. He's not like you. And praise God for that. God is perfectly just. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly reliable to do all that he has said. And God has proved himself holy and reliable. As he is enthroned, I love that phrase, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Get the image of the the poetry in this text in your mind. You can even shut your eyes if you have to. As God's people gather to sing his praise, as, as God's people praise him in the quiet of the morning when nobody else is around, nobody else sees, when God's people praise him in the middle of the night when they can't sleep, when God's people give praise to God when they share of Him with their family and friends, when God's people give praise to God in the visible and the invisible places of life, life, it's, it's as if each word of praise is one little piece of the regal, sovereign throne of God that He sits upon. And think of this, over time and through the years, the swell of the trillions and trillions of praises of God's people that they have given, they don't even amount to a brick in the throne, the mighty throne of God when compared with the innumerable praises of God's people that they will give to Him throughout eternity to come. Even as we sang in that amazing grace, look back at that on page three of the bulletin, that last last verse. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Can you imagine that? God is enthroned on the praises of his people and the few praises that have happened on this earth in this brief life in this short span of the existence of this earth as it is broken as it is is only the beginning of the establishment of the rule and reign of God as the king of kings and Lord of lords. God is huge. His throne is inconceivably immense. This God is the God in whom their fathers, the fathers of Israel trusted, and God saved them. This is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses, of Joshua. He's the God of Ruth, of Obed, the ancestry of King David. God rescued his people when they cried out to him. In the past. But he will in the future as well. But then David laments again. Look at verses 6 through 8. It's as if David compares himself to how great. The fathers of Israel seem to be. And in comparison with them. He's nothing but a worm. He is the object. Of the mocking of men. It's almost as if in David's. The mind's eye of David. He's thinking of Abraham. And Isaac. And Jacob. And all of those. The fathers that have come before him. As if. They weren't scorned by men. But he sees his life and the promise of God to himself as, well, I'm scorned, I'm nothing. The nations trample on me. Even as Saul comes against him, as Absalom seeks to usurp the throne. But even though David sees himself as a worm, it seems to be in comparison to what just came before the father's. He fights his despair by reminding himself that God is his hope, not himself, not his own circumstances in verses 9 through 11. God is the one who took David from the womb. He is the one that made David trust in in him, in Yahweh, the one true living God. God is the one that made David trust in him at his mother's breasts. David was cast or thrown upon God from his birth, from his mother's womb. David didn't do these things. God did these things. The one true and living God of Israel has been David's God. The point is that even though David now is a grown man, it's as if he's an infant again. In one sense, nothing has changed. The helplessness of infancy is fresh upon David In his adulthood, he is utterly dependent upon God. Yet, the abandonment that David felt is only a glimmer of the abandonment of David's greater son, Jesus Christ. As Jesus Christ went to the cross, he owned this cry of dereliction from verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That this whole psalm opens with. Jesus was arrested, he was condemned to die Beaten and flogged, he was forced to carry his cross that he would be crucified or killed upon to Calvary. Men spit upon him. He was crowned with a crown of thorns that were beaten into his head. They nailed him naked to the cross. Mark writes of Christ in Mark chapter 15, verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 was the way that Jesus interpreted his crucifixion. Psalm 22 is the way that Jesus interpreted his death. And consider in Jesus Christ the perfect fulfillment of the the scorn, the despising, the mocking of men as they wag their heads saying, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Again, uh, the, the gospel accounts give us a, a perfect fulfillment of that. Mark chapter 15, verse 29 through 32. And those who passed by derided him, Christ, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself come down from the cro- and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Oh, friends, the claims of Christ were not lost upon these men. Jesus was claiming to be the king of Israel. The abandonment that David felt was real, but it's only a glimmer of the greater abandonment that was felt by Christ. To be forsaken by God is to feel the curse of God for breaking covenant with God, for sinful rebellion against God, of which Christ did not commit. David was lamenting the feeling of being forsaken by God, but Jesus his lament was the actual being forsaken by God as, as the Father turned His face away. Isaiah chapter 59 verses 1 through 3 says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Friends, Jesus is fully man, fully God, who is without sin, who is perfect in every way. He took the sin of his people upon himself. He faced hell. The eternal wrath of God's curse that His people deserve. But the second point is this: not only do we see the lament, the roaring lament of God's King, we also see in this text the roaring threats of the enemies of God's King in verses eleven, the second part of verse eleven through verse twenty-one. David's response to feeling that God abandoned him was reminding himself of God's holiness, number one, and how God is enthroned on the praises of his people and remembering God's past faithfulness to Israel's fathers. So that's the second way that he's fighting his despair. But David's response to the lament of being an unworthy worm as being worse than the fathers and the faith that came before was also a reminder of his helplessness and in his infancy of God's only God's powerful ability to choose and save him. So, in light of that, he asks God not to be far from him. But then, in the second half of verse eleven, he begins to spiral into lament again. So, a third lament: trouble is near. There is none to help, and, and then that lament it spirals, keeps going down through verse eighteen. And David's roaring lament, it pivots to considering the roar of those who come against him. And we get this horrible image of bulls with wide open mouths like lions in verses 12 through 13. And David's response in verse 14 is this. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, or broken pieces of pottery. That's what that means and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. David is at the, at the brink of the point of death when there is a fight in this imagery of, against this, this lament of feeling abandoned by God. But you see also, this is a, a man who is fighting dehydration as well as the tongue sticks to his jaws. And the poetry of David's lament brings to mind the image of a man Who desperately even needs water. Verses sixteen through eighteen is the first description of what David is up against. He's not facing merely illness, but he's facing people that are coming against him. Look there, for dogs encompass me. The company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And friends, dogs back then, they weren't man's best friend. They were like vultures. They would go around and they would, they would eat on the dead. They were not a, a respectable animal that we have made them to be today in our, in our culture and society. David's describing with his agony, with poetry. But in David's description, he is drawing a picture, as it were, an outline of the king who would come through his lineage. God is using this roaring lament of David, and then also this roaring of the opposition of David's enemies to reveal to David that the glorious beauty that there is that would would come in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. So consider how Jesus Christ faced the roaring threats of his enemies. First, dehydration. John chapter 19 Verse 28 through 30 says this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And Christ, his great King David's greater son, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God, his hands and his feet were pierced by those who came up against him. Mark chapter 15, verse 25 says this, And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And then after Jesus rose again from the dead in John chapter 20, Thomas was asking to see the mark of the nails in Christ's hands, in the pierced side even to put a finger in it. In order to believe that this truly is the Christ, Jesus Christ that died and has risen. And they divided up Christ's garments as he was crucified. John chapter 19, verse 23 through 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But it's not just that Jesus Christ fulfilled Psalm 22 in the events of his his crucifixion. There's an accumulation of what the Messiah would be like throughout the course of the entire Old Testament. So in Psalm chapter 53, or Isaiah rather chapter 53, that Jordan read a little bit ago, but also in other places in the Old Testament, listen to Zechariah chapter 12, "And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. God, in the Old Testament, is outlining what the King of Kings would look like, a suffering servant. One who would be pierced through the hands and through the feet. One who would be, at the point of death, thirsty and dehydrated. And here's the point of all of this. Jesus, by quoting Psalm 22, it's not just a Kind of a a flippant way to say, hey, I know some of the Bible, and some of it's being fulfilled in me. No, Jesus is quoting this, saying, I'm the King. I am the King of Israel. The psalm that David penned as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit is pointing at me. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to establish a kingdom through David, through David's eternal throne, and he will be a king who suffers. That's one of the expectations that we should have as we read through the Old Testament that God's King, His Messiah, the anointed one that would come to save, the one who would establish and fulfill all of God's promises, will be a suffering servant. And Jesus' interpretation of Psalm 22 is this I am the King of Israel. And not only is Jesus the King of the Jews, But we'll consider this from the last point in Psalm 22, that he is the very God whose kingship expands to all nations. This powerful truth begins to break in in David's third response of hope. So there's three laments, there's three responses of hope to those laments. But look at that third response of hope. There's a huge conjunction there in verse 19. But, but you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to, to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. So that the despair response to the, the roaring of God's enemies, of God's king, that it, it's that they are unable to overpower the faith of God's king. God's king holds to and embraces and fights his despair with a solid hope and firm trust in God's promises to him. can't see it, but God, what he says is true. It's reliable. Many who have taught on this have made the comment that Jesus quotes verse 1, and in quoting verse 1, he is basically claiming that this whole psalm is about himself. This is confirmed in how every line of this psalm points us to a king who would suffer, Jesus Christ. His sufferings, we see again and again in the text. It's pointing, it's a type, and it's a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. But also we see the foreshadow of the trust of the king and the salvation of God. Jesus Christ didn't stay in the grave. He bore the abandonment and eternal wrath of God that his people deserve for their sin. And that day after his death, he was with the Father in paradise. And three days later, he would rise again from the dead. And where David was delivered from his enemies, Christ was delivered to his enemies. But it was in this being caught, in Christ's being caught, in the mouth of the lion and being encompassed by the power of the dogs. And it's even ironic as well that often Gentiles are referred to as dogs, in the Bible, even Jesus is caught in the clutches of, of this Rome and its involvement with Israel. But it being encompassed by the power of dogs, That and there we see that Jesus Christ delivers David, even. And all of those who would turn from their sin and trust in him. And, and it was in Christ's suffering and death that Jesus defeated who the Apostle Peter describes as our adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Jesus Christ is the very hope of David overcoming the roar of David's enemies, of the enemies of the king, of God's chosen king. And in Christ, uh, the second half of verse 21 is powerfully fulfilled. Look at that there. You, God, have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. The certain fulfillment of God's promises to David is fulfilled so powerfully that the lament that David begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It turns into a mission of a glorious expansion of the kingdom of God's king. And that leads to the last point, this the roaring expansion of the king's rule. Consider this from verses 22 through 31. Christ's victory is in his resurrection from the dead. But then it moves forward to the spread of the good news of forgiveness for sins and the salvation by faith alone that is in Christ alone to all nations and the praise of God in the midst of the great congregation. Remember, God's covenant with Jacob is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God's covenant with Jacob is the extension of God's uh, promise, his covenant promise with Abraham. So that the covenant of Abraham, of a singular offspring, is fulfilled in God's covenant with David. The coming of a king that this psalm points to. The Apostle Paul teaches us us this in Romans and Galatians, that Jesus Christ is the singular offspring of David. He's the singular offspring of Abraham. And it's by faith in that singular offspring that many sons are, are brought to glory that they can be counted as heirs of God's promises. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, friend, God is calling you to be a part of this great congregation, this great expansion of God's rule. And friend, live for something more than just chasing empty pleasures in this world or being bored with your work or, or whatever it is. Seek to find what you were made for, the favor of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, the pleasure of God eternally. And none of us, friends, none of us can be saved by our works. None of us can commend ourselves to God by our works. We can't even be saved by uttering praises to Him. But the only way that we can be saved is by turning from embracing our sin as the very treasure of our lives. And trusting in full-hearted devotion and obedience and submission to Jesus Christ as King. The king who was forsaken as the only treasure. He is the only treasure that truly exists. Jesus Christ bore the eternal wrath of God that you and I deserve if we would but only turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ. So friends, we can find forgiveness for our sins in light of the just wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. If we would trust, turn from our sin and trust in God's king, Jesus Christ. And trust in the death and resurrection of Christ and be grafted into this great congregation that David longs to be a part of, of singing praises to God. And friend, you need to know too, if you're not trusting in Christ, that you don't have him as your treasure and king of your life. That you deserve what Christ faced in behalf of his people, God's eternal wrath and hell. So friends, flee from your sin. Be found in the kingdom of God's King, Jesus Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're trusting in Christ. He is the treasure of your life. He is the king of your heart and of your life. Look forward to praising God in this congregation that David is looking forward to that is coming. This is what we foreshadow as we gather each Lord's day. Uh, ask yourself if, you, if it's hard, it's a slog to get out of bed, to come to church, to sing praises to God. Together, ask God to make it the delight and the desire of your heart to sing praises to God with his people. Be found in the kingdom, this great congregation of God's king, Jesus Christ. And consider how verse 22 also is fulfilled in Christ. When Jesus told Mary, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, quotes verse 22 in Psalm 22 in saying this, For it was fitting that He, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Friends, I am not a worship leader, really, ultimately. Jesus Christ is the worship leader of his people, As they gather together, the songs that we sing, the truths that we admonish and encourage one another with as we gather together as a church, ultimately we are joining in with this singing of King Jesus, a roaring of a different kind, the the lion of the tribe of Judah as he leads his people in the great congregation of singing of the praise of God, even as we gather and sing of the praise of Christ. Jesus is the king who tells of God's name, to his brothers in the midst of the congregation. He's the perfect fulfillment of David's desire to sing and proclaim God's salvation and praise among the congregation. In Christ, this is what we do again each week as we gather, tell of his praises. Sing of the expansion of his kingdom and of his rule. And this is what we pray for together. God, make your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we participate and long for those that we love to be found in the kingdom of God. So we share of the gospel. We sing of his praise and we invite. This is part of the invitation that we go out with as we scatter throughout the course of the week. Inviting people. You were made for this. Come and sing of the praises of the king. Along with the king, the choir leader, Jesus Christ. As we gather together on the Lord's day. And consider how God the Father heard the cries of Jesus, fulfilling David's words in verse 24 as well. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 says this, In the days of his, Jesus' flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Psalm 22, it doesn't use a roar, that word roar, like we see David using in the first point, or the roar of the enemies of the king in the second point. We don't see Psalm 22 using that word roar to describe the expansion of God's kingdom in verses 22 through 31, but the fulfillment of the power of the expansion of the rule of God's king here in this text that we're reading about in this last point Culminates in a great roar as God saves a great congregation and as they sing his praises ultimately at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb of God who was slain for the salvation of his people. Jesus Christ, who is the lion, is also the Lamb. David is longing for this in the future. Listen to Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, and consider the roar. There, it's not the roar of a lion. It's not the roar of groaning. But the roar, as it it were, thunder. Of crashing waters that drowns out the roars of our groaning or of God's people's groaning throughout the ages and of the attacks against God's king that come against him from his enemies. Listen to Revelation 19, verses six through nine. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is what the third section of Psalm 22 points to. The roaring expansion of God's victory through his king. And that's the very roaring that God's throne is enthroned upon. The praising of his people from verse 3. So that the weak roars of God's enemies that come against him and against his king are drowned out by this eternal roaring of God's people as they praise their God. You know that that reflects the powerful roar, the salvation, the victory of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Verses 26 through 27 are fulfilled. As Christ promises, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And friends, consider how all of it culminates in a meal. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the giver of living water. That if we eat and drink of Jesus Christ by faith, that the water that he gives will become in us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus powerfully shows that he is the bread of life in feeding well over 5,000, and then again, well over 4,000 people, and ultimately this eating and being satisfied is what God's people, the the congregation, look forward to when God's final judgment comes. In Revelation chapter 19, again, verse 6 through 9, Think of this. This is the longing of God's people. Is This the longing of your heart to be found in this congregation. This is ultimately the fulfillment of what David longs to, for to sing God's praise gathered with the congregation. And listen to the, the description of the multitude, of the congregation from Revelation 7. A great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So friends, even as we proclaim Christ's death again until he returns as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few moments we learn that even what we do is just a, a, a brief little foreshadow of the marriage supper that awaits God's people as we eagerly await the return of the king, the return of the husband of the bride, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. David's kingship isn't even about himself. David's kingship is about Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in verse 28. Look there. For kingship belongs to David? No. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. And you can see how this salvation that God accomplishes for his king, through his king, this coming, even as Jesus fulfills this and is abandoned by God, forsaken by God, He accomplished salvation, and it's a salvation that doesn't find its terminal point in Israel. It doesn't end within the boundaries of ethnic Jews. It's a salvation for all the nations. If they would but turn and bow down before this king that would come through the lineage of David. Even as God saved David and established his throne, that throne exists for Christ to take up his power and to reign. God is the king who will come in the line of David, Jesus Christ, God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the second person of the one true and living God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the son of David, the king that would come through the lineage of David. In verse 29, it powerfully points to the coming resurrection from the dead. Jesus has been raised from the dead, but one day we will all be raised before the judgment of God. All who go down, you see the words there, all who go down to the dust and even the one who could not keep himself alive will worship him. How could that happen if it were not for the existence of a coming resurrection from the dead? It couldn't. All of this was accomplished in Christ. His dying breath has brought his people life. In Christ's abandonment, And victorious resurrection, he fully accomplished the salvation of his people. So friend, if you are putting your hope in your works, friends, leave off. And even if you're trusting in Christ and you think that somehow by doing something each day is somehow making God more pleased with you than he was yesterday or the day that Christ died and rose again, leave off thinking that somehow you are able by your own strength to grow yourself. No, God is pleased with you by faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. That last line in this psalm, verse 31, it, it clinches it. He has done it. Christ has done it. The Lord has done it. The King of kings and Lord of lords. And again, friends, that, that last line, that is the point of the entire Bible. He has done it done it. It's the main point of the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God, He created the heavens and the earth. God did it. It's the point of the end of the Bible. God is establishing a people. He will establish a new heavens and a new earth. God does it. God saves a people for Himself. How? He has done it. Again, that's the point of the, of the Bible. God has done it. And this text also equips us, friends, if you're trusting in Christ to be an ambassador for the King. Sing of God's praise even as we leave this place. Let this psalm lift up your eyes from the trials that you face to fully rest upon God in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and behold the victory of God in He who was forsaken so that we as his people might never be abandoned or forsaken. And he was raised to justify a people, to declare an unrighteous people righteous. Again, he was forsaken for us. friends, can you feel the beauty of the roar of the salvation of, of God? as he is building his kingdom among his people. Can you see the strength of God to save hopeless sinners like us? My friends, put your hope in the victory that God has accomplished in Christ. Bow down in awe and wonder and worship that he would say, a wretch like me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for Christ. We give you praise that our hope is not in ourselves. We're thankful for that because we see that we so often fail and we fall short of your glory. And Father, we give you praise that Christ is sufficient to bear our hope. He is sufficient to bear our confidence. We give you praise that Christ is sufficient for our praise. And God, we give you praise that we that you have accomplished reconciliation. Through Christ, that we don't have to bear your eternal wrath for our sin because of what you have done to send him for us in the stead of wicked and ruined sinners. We give you praise for Christ. And even now, God, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would help us to do it in such a way that might honor and glorify you. And Father, we pray that you would help us to not trust in bread or in the fruit of the vine. To help us to trust in the bread of life, Christ, in the giver of living water, Jesus Christ. Help us to feast upon Christ by faith alone. Amen. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.